Section 111, Introduction The saints in Missouri rejoiced over the completion and dedication of the Kirtland Temple, but they had barely received reports of the many miraculous things which had occurred when they received the most disheartening news from the leaders of Clay County. For over two years, the fugitive saints had been allowed to settle peacefully in Clay County across the Missouri River from Jackson County. The people of Clay County had been so friendly and hospitable that the saints decided to buy up what land was available and invite the immigrating members of the church to settle there instead of Jackson County. This body of immigrants alarmed the people of Clay County, and on June the 29, 1836, a mass meeting was held. They decided to ask the saints to move out of the county so they would not have to be forced to move out as they were in Jackson County. They passed a resolution to that effect and admitted that they had no constitutional right to make this request, but said it would avoid open warfare by the aroused people. Here is why they said the saints must move. Quote, they are Eastern men whose manner, habits, customs, and even dialect are essentially different from our own. They are non-slaveholders and opposed to slavery, which in this peculiar period when abolitionism has reared its deformed and haggard visage in our land is well calculated to excite deep and abiding prejudice in any community where slavery is tolerated and protected." Unquote. Now this is Joseph Fielding Smith's Essentials of Church History, page 195. The Declaration also stated that the Mormons were friendly to the Indian people and preached that they are part of God's chosen people. Then they concluded, quote, These and many other causes have combined to raise a prejudice against them, that is, the Mormons, and a feeling of hostility that the first spark may, and we deeply fear will, ignite into all the horrors and desolations of a civil war, the worst evil that can befall any country, unquote. That's from the Essentials of Church History, page 195. Three days later, on July the 1st, 1836, the Missouri Saints replied. They thanked the people of Clay County for helping them and said they would move out of their midst as soon as they could arrange it. The saints decided to settle further north where Clay County was more or less uninhabited and asked the state to let them set up a new county. This was approved by the state and named Caldwell County. The first presidency approved of this peaceful settlement of the Missouri crisis, even though it meant extensive losses to the saints. These were the distressing circumstances when Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Hiram Smith and Oliver Cowdery left Kirtland for a mission to the east. They passed through Albany, New York, Providence, Boston, and arrived in Salem, Massachusetts. On August the 6th, 1836, Joseph approached the Lord for guidance in this new missionary endeavor. Here is what the Lord had to say, and here is the text of section 111. I, the Lord your God, am not displeased with your coming this journey, notwithstanding your follies. The Lord seems pleased that they have come on this mission, but says this in spite of their follies. This seems to imply that Joseph should have approached the Lord earlier 
and not waited until he reached the mission field before he asked for guidance. Furthermore, when Joseph gets back to Kirtland after a month or so in the east, he will find that all kinds of mischief has taken place, perhaps leaving Kirtland without being told to do so at this critical time may have been one of his follies. I have much treasure in this city for you for the benefit of Zion, and many people in this city, whom I will gather out in due time for the benefit of Zion through your instrumentality. The Lord knows that Joseph is deeply worried over the $13,000 the church owes on the Kirtland Temple, and the church is also pressed by other financial obligations. So Joseph must have taken some comfort from the Lord's statement that the city of Salem has many souls who will be gathered out as part of the Lord's treasure, and in due time many of these will be for the benefit of Zion. Jesus, of course, is looking down the corridor of history. He sees Salem and other metropolitan centers in our day when vast treasures of tithing and liberal contributions will allow the church to build beautiful chapels and over a hundred temples. Therefore, it is expedient that you should form acquaintance with men in this city, as you shall be led, and as it shall be given you, and it shall come to pass in due time, that I will give this city into your hands, that you shall have power over it, insomuch that they shall not discover your secret parts, and its wealth pertaining to gold and silver shall be yours. These two verses must be read in the light of the Savior's prophetic eye rather than Joseph Smith's current needs. Concern not yourselves about your debts, for I will give you power to pay them. Knowing the future of the church, it is no wonder that Jesus would say, quote, Concern not yourselves about your debts, for I will give you power to pay them. Unquote. Concern not yourselves about Zion, for I will deal mercifully with her. The Lord knows that the future prosperity of the church depends upon the success of Zion. Therefore, Zion must always be the center of focus among the saints. Tarry in this place and in the regions round about. Now that this band of missionaries have arrived in Salem, the Lord urges them to tarry for a while and make the most of it. And the place where it is my will that you should tarry for the main shall be signalized unto you by the peace and power of my Spirit that shall flow unto you. Whenever God's people are doing what he wants them to do, a spirit of peace and a sense of well-being comes over them. This place you may obtain by hire, and inquire diligently concerning the more ancient inhabitants and founders of this city. Salem was in Essex County, and it was to this region that Joseph's first American ancestor, Robert Smith, had settled. In fact, the tombstones of scores of Joseph's ancestors are in this county. The Lord is anticipating the future program of the church to provide salvation for the righteous dead. In due time, quote, the ancient inhabitants, unquote, of Massachusetts will become a major center of genealogical interest for Joseph and many other members of the church. For there are more treasures than one for you in this city. Therefore, be ye as wise as serpents, and yet without sin, 
and I will order all things for your good, as fast as ye are able to receive them. Amen. Section 112, Introduction It was in the late summer of 1836 that Joseph and his companions returned from their missionary campaign in the East. On the way back to Kirtland, Joseph and Martin Harris stopped off at Palmyra and apparently stayed at the home of Martin Harris. It was there that the prophet had the terrible vision which Joseph asked the Lord to remove from his mind. The prophet's mother describes this experience and says, quote, When they arrived at Palmyra on their return, Joseph had a vision which lasted until he besought the Lord to take it from him, for it manifested to him things which were painful to contemplate. It was taken from before his eyes for a short time, but soon returned again and remained until the whole scene was portrayed before him. On his arrival at home, the brethren seemed greatly pleased to see him. The next day he preached a sermon, and the following is part of his remarks. Mother Smith quotes the prophet as follows, Brethren, I am rejoiced to see you, and I have no doubt but that you are glad to see me. We are now nearly as happy as we can be on earth. We have accomplished more than we had any reason to expect when we began. Our beautiful house is finished, and the Lord has acknowledged it by pouring out His Spirit upon us here and revealing to us much of His will in regard to the work which He is about to perform. Furthermore, we have everything that is necessary to our comfort and convenience, and judging from appearances, one would not suppose that anything could occur which would break up our friendship for each other or disturb our tranquility. But brethren, beware, for I tell you in the name of the Lord that there is an evil in this very congregation which, if not repented of, will result in setting many of you who are here this day so much at enmity against me that you will have a desire to take my life, and you would even do it if God should permit the deed. But brethren, I now call upon you to repent and cease all your hardness of heart and turn from those principles of death and dishonesty which you are harboring in your bosoms before it is eternally too late, for there is yet room for repentance. Mother Smith then continues, In the fall of 1836, a bank was established in Kirtland. Soon after the sermon by Joseph just mentioned, Joseph discovered that a large amount of money had been taken away by fraud from this bank. He immediately demanded a search warrant of Esquire Frederick B. Williams, which was flatly refused. I insist upon the warrant, said Joseph, for if you'll give me one, I can get the money, and if you do not, I will break you of your office. Well, break it then, said Williams, and we will strike hands upon it. Very well, said Joseph. From henceforth I drop you from my quorum of the First Presidency and in the name of the Lord. Joseph then went to Cleveland in order to transact some business pertaining to the bank, and as he was absent the ensuing Sunday, my husband, Father Smith, preached to the people. In speaking of the bank affair, he reflected somewhat sharply upon Warren Parrish, 
Although the reflection was just, Parrish was highly incensed and made an attempt to drag him, that is, Father Smith, out of the stand. My husband appealed to Oliver Cowdery, who was justice of the peace, to have him brought to order, but Oliver never moved from his seat. William Smith, seeing the abuse which his father was receiving, sprang forward and caught Parrish and carried him in his arms nearly out of the house. At this point, John Boynton, who was an apostle who was soon to be excommunicated, stepped forward and, drawing a sword, presented it to William Smith's breast and said, If you advance one step further, I will run you through. Before William had time to turn himself, several gathered around him, threatening to handle him severely if he should lay the weight of his finger upon Parrish again. At this juncture of affairs, I left the house not only terrified at the scene, but likewise sick at heart to see the apostasy of which Joseph had prophesied was so near at hand. This is taken from Lucy Mack Smith's History of Joseph Smith, pages 241 to 243. In September 1836, Joseph and Hiram went to Missouri to see if the proposed Caldwell County would be a suitable place for the new gathering place of the saints, While they were gone, Hiram's wife died. Her last words to Hiram's five little children were, Tell your father when he comes that the Lord has taken your mother home and left you for him to take care of. This is in Joseph Fielding Smith's Essentials of Church History, page 200. President Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon returned to Kirtland December 10, 1836. To their amazement, they found that during their absence, Warren Parrish, John F. Boynton, Luke S. Johnson, Joseph Coe, Sylvester Smith, and others had united to take over the church. It was their plan to make David Whitmer the new president. Their secret meetings had been held in the temple, and the conspirators had seized possession of it and called it their own. In this manner, the house of the Lord, which had been so recently accepted by the Savior, had been desecrated and defiled so that it forever ceased to be his holy house. Once widespread apostasy had gained a foothold, it began to play havoc with the church both in Kirtland and among the saints in Missouri. It was as though Satan himself had taken charge of the campaign to destroy the church. In Kirtland, the financial panic which had swept over the country had not only bankrupted the Kirtland society, but it gave the enemies of the prophet an additional excuse to blame him for all their problems. People who had invested unwisely, as well as those who were guilty of embezzlement and fraud, pointed the finger of blame at Joseph Smith. However, the record shows that it was he who had warned the people against the promoters of the scheme, and the majority of the people failed to heed his counsel. Now the church was facing a threatening calamity. To deal with the coming storm, the Lord instructed Joseph to send Heber C. Kimball and several of the brethren to open a mission in England. Brother Kimball said he would go if Brigham Young went with him. However, Joseph said Brigham was needed elsewhere, and so Heber C. Kimball and his companions set out June the 12th, 1837. In addition to Heber C. Kimball, this little band included Orson Hyde, 
Willard Richards, and Joseph Fielding. They were later joined by Isaac Russell, John Goodson, and John Snyder. On July 23, 1837, the missionaries in England launched their conversion campaign, and on that very same day, Joseph received a revelation for Thomas B. Marsh and the Quorum of the Twelve. It had been nearly a year since Joseph had received a formal revelation from the Lord. Later, when Joseph received letters indicating that the missionaries were baptizing the English saints by the thousands, he knew the mission to England would eventually be the salvation of the church. Meanwhile, here is the revelation to Joseph for Thomas B. Marsh and the Quorum of the Twelve. Here is the text of section 112. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Thomas, I have heard thy prayers. And thine alms have come up as a memorial before me in behalf of those thy brethren, who were chosen to bear testimony of my name, and to send it abroad among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, and ordained through the instrumentality of my servants. Perhaps Thomas B. Marsh had become aware that the taint of apostasy was raising questions in the minds of some of the twelve apostles, and he had therefore pleaded with the Lord in their behalf. In any event, the Lord acknowledged his prayers, and the Lord says it is still his intent to send the quorum forth to preach the gospel to all the world. Verily I say unto you, There have been some few things in thine heart, and with thee with which I, the Lord, was not well pleased. Nevertheless, inasmuch as thou hast abased thyself, thou shalt be exalted. Therefore all thy sins are forgiven thee. Even Thomas B. Marsh had been wavering somewhat, but since he had recognized the faults that had crept into his heart and abased himself before the Lord, his sins were forgiven. Let thy heart be of good cheer before my face, and thou shalt bear record of my name, not only unto the Gentiles, but also unto the Jews, and thou shalt send forth my word unto the ends of the earth. The Lord tells Thomas to be of good cheer, for it is still part of the Lord's intent to have him preach to the Gentiles and also the Jews. This further demonstrates the policy of the Lord to treat each person in the most favorable possible light right up to the time he falls. Later on, Thomas Marsh will lose his calling as an apostle, but the Lord says that as of this moment, the prospect for the future is promising for him. This shows that the Lord does not intend to anticipate the future until Thomas B. Marsh has not only apostatized, but plotted to replace the prophet Joseph as the president of the church. Contend thou, therefore, morning by morning, and day after day, let thy warning voice go forth. And when the night cometh, let not the inhabitants of the earth slumber because of thy speech. Setting the future aside, the Lord tells Thomas B. Marsh to preach the warning message of the gospel day and night. Let thy habitation be known in Zion, and remove not thy house. For I, the Lord, have a great work for thee to do, in publishing my name among the children of men. This verse is somewhat puzzling until we learn that he had an inheritance of about thirty acres on the Blue River. But when the saints were driven out of Jackson County, where the property was located, 
He settled in Lafayette County instead of going with the body of the Jackson County Saints into Clay County. Later, he did not move into Clay County, but after the new Caldwell County had been set up for the gathering of the saints, he settled in Far West. The Lord tells him to publicize the fact that he has established himself in Zion, and from there the quorum of the twelve will go forth. Therefore, gird up thy loins for the work. Let thy feet be shod also, for thou art chosen and thy path lieth among the mountains and among many nations. Brother Marsh made his first venture into foreign lands in 1837 when he accompanied Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon on a short mission into Canada. Had he stayed faithful, he would have also made the heroic trek into the mountains of the western wilderness. And by thy word many high ones shall be brought low, and by thy word many low ones shall be exalted. Thy voice shall be a rebuke unto the transgressor, and at thy rebuke let the tongue of the slanderer cease its perverseness. Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand, and give the answer to thy prayers. These three verses describe the blessings which the Lord is holding in store for Brother Marsh if he remains faithful. I know thy heart, and have heard thy prayers concerning thy brethren. Be not partial towards them in love above many others, but let thy love be for them as for thyself, and let thy love abound unto all men, and unto all who love my name. Here the Lord refers once more to the prayers of Elder Marsh on behalf of the Twelve. However, the Lord warns him to refrain from being partial, but to let his love and concern abound for all who love the Lord. And pray for thy brethren of the Twelve. Admonish them sharply for my name's sake, and let them be admonished for all their sins, and be ye faithful before me unto my name. The Lord's deep concern for the twelve is reflected in his command to admonish the twelve sharply because of their sins. He also admonished Elder Marsh to be faithful. And after their temptations and much tribulation, behold, I, the Lord, will feel after them. And if they harden not their hearts and stiffen not their necks against me, they shall be converted, and I will heal them. Now I say unto you, and what I say unto you, I say unto all the twelve, Arise, and gird up your loins, take up your cross, follow me, and feed my sheep. The Lord refers specifically to the temptations and much tribulations of the twelve, which they will be called upon to endure. But if they remain faithful, he will, quote, feel after them, unquote. In fact, if they humble themselves, they will be completely converted, and the Lord will heal them. This entire verse portends some rugged times ahead for the Quorum of the Twelve. Exalt not yourselves, rebel not against my servant Joseph. For verily I say unto you, I am with him, and my hand shall be over him. And the keys which I have given unto him, and also to youward, shall not be taken from him till I come. 
Amazingly, the trend among the apostates was to replace Joseph Smith as the Lord's prophet. The Lord knew that eventually this apostate aspiration would penetrate the top leaders of the church, including the Twelve. Therefore, the Lord bears a powerful testimony concerning Joseph and the fact that the keys will never be taken from him until the second coming. Verily I say unto you, my servant Thomas, Thou art the man whom I have chosen to hold the keys of my kingdom, as pertaining to the twelve abroad among all nations. Now the Lord emphasizes the present status of Elder Marsh as the custodian of the keys which puts him in charge of the ministry of the twelve. That thou mayest be my servant to unlock the door of the kingdom in all places where my servant Joseph and my servant Sidney and my servant Hiram cannot come. The main task of the twelve is to open the doors of the kingdom where Joseph, Sidney Rigdon, and Hiram Smith are not able to go. For on them have I laid the burden of all the churches for a little season. Wherefore, whithersoever they shall send you, go ye, and I will be with you. And in whatsoever place ye shall proclaim my name, an effectual door shall be opened unto you, that they may receive my word. It is important that Elder Marsh realize that for the moment, the whole burden of administering the affairs of the individual churches or congregations is on the shoulders of the First Presidency. Whosoever receiveth my word receiveth me, and whosoever receiveth me receiveth those the First Presidency whom I have sent whom I have made counselors for my name's sake unto you. When the people receive those who are sent out by the First Presidency, it is as though they were receiving the Lord. And again I say unto you, that whosoever ye shall send in my name by the voice of your brethren the Twelve, duly recommended and authorized by you, shall have power to open the door of my kingdom unto any nation, whithersoever ye shall send them inasmuch as they shall humble themselves before me and abide in my word and hearken to the voice of my spirit. It is also true that those who receive the messengers sent out by the twelve are accepting the Lord. Verily, verily, I say unto you, darkness covereth the earth and gross darkness the minds of the people, and all flesh has become corrupt before my face. Behold, vengeance cometh speedily upon the inhabitants of the earth, a day of wrath, a day of burning, a day of desolation, of weeping, of mourning, and of lamentation. And as a whirlwind it shall come upon all the face of the earth, saith the Lord. These two verses contain God's judgment of the current condition of the whole earth. All flesh is corrupt, and a day is pending when there will be a burning of the wicked and a desolation of all nations. And upon my house shall it begin, and from my house shall it go forth, saith the Lord. First among those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name, and have not known me, and have blasphemed against me in the midst of my house, saith the Lord. Now we come to a pair of terribly significant verses. The Lord says that his cleansing will begin with his own people. 
and then spread out across the earth. He says it will commence among the saints who profess to know his name, but were hypocrites. They blasphemed his name after making covenants with him in his holy temple. Therefore see to it that ye trouble not yourselves concerning the affairs of my church in this place, saith the Lord. But purify your hearts before me, and then go ye into all the world, and preach my gospel unto every creature who has not received it. The twelve are not to concern themselves with the local administration of the church in Kirtland and Zion, but are to go forth and extend the kingdom into all the nations of the world. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. Here is the same commission Jesus gave to his apostles in ancient times. For unto you the twelve, and those the first presidency, who are appointed with you to be your counselors and your leaders, is the power of this priesthood given for the last days and for the last time, in the which is the dispensation of the fullness of times. The Lord wants to emphasize what an honor it is for these members of the Twelve and the First Presidency to have the power of the priesthood to spread the gospel throughout the earth for the last time. Which power you hold in connection with all those who have received a dispensation at any time from the beginning of the creation? For verily I say unto you, the keys of the dispensation which ye have received have come down from the fathers, and last of all being sent down from heaven unto you. The Lord reminds them that they have received the keys that they hold in connection with every dispensation which preceded them. Verily I say unto you, Behold how great is your calling. Cleanse your hearts and your garments, lest the blood of this generation be required at your hands. The Lord seems to appreciate that there is no way these men can comprehend what a great calling they have received at this particular time. He therefore urges them to cleanse themselves and fulfill their calling, lest the blood of this generation be required at their hands when the great judgment is pronounced. He then closes by emphasizing that there is no time to dally and neglect their calling, from now until the second coming, every generation must realize that for them, the end is much closer than they realize. And the Lord says the coming will not only happen quickly, but so will his judgment. Be faithful until I come, for I come quickly, and my reward is with me to recompense every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega. Amen. Now section 113. Introduction. Next to the year when Joseph and Hiram were assassinated, 1837 and 38 was the saddest period in the history of the church up to that time. Apostasy and murder were in the air, and when Brigham Young defended Joseph Smith, he had to flee from Kirtland in the middle of the night to save his life. He met his brother, Dublin, Indiana, and invited the prophet to join them if he so desired. 
Eventually, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon also had to flee from Kirtland to save their lives. They fled by night on January 12, 1838, and did not stop until they reached Norton, Ohio. That's almost 60 miles from Kirtland. They stopped there long enough for their families to catch up with them. Then they proceeded to Dublin, Indiana, and joined Brigham Young. The prophet was totally destitute, but a member of the church sold his farm and gave the prophet $300 to continue his journey. This is described by Leonard J. Arrington in his book entitled Brigham Young, American Moses, page 62. By this time, the murderous gang from Kirtland had caught up with them, and even though they saw Joseph several times, they failed to recognize him. Joseph says, quote, Our pursuers, who continued their pursuit of us more than 200 miles from Kirtland, armed with pistols and guns, seeking our lives. They frequently crossed our track. Twice they were in the houses where we stopped. Once we tarried all night in the same house with them, and late in the evening they came in our room and examined us, but decided we were not the men, Unquote. This is in Church History, Volume 3, page 3. The miraculous blinding of the eyes of the mobbers discouraged them, and they finally gave up. Joseph and his family proceeded on their journey to far west Missouri, and arrived on March the 14th, 1838. The saints were overjoyed to have the prophet Joseph with them as a permanent resident. The saints saw the poverty of the Smith family and assured Joseph that they would support him so he could get on with the Lord's work. However, prior to the arrival of the prophet in Missouri, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, had taken action against the Missouri presidency consisting of David Whitmer, William W. Phelps, and John Whitmer. They were charged with selling their covenant lands in Jackson County and misappropriating funds which had been borrowed for the benefit of the church. David Whitmer was charged with neglect of duty and violating the word of wisdom. Oliver Cowdery was also charged with selling his lots in Jackson County, but his case and that of David Whitmer were held over until the prophet arrived. The priesthood members in Far West were anxious to present a number of doctrinal questions to Joseph. His response to these questions comprised section 113 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was recorded sometime in March 1838. So here is the text of section 113. Who is the stem of Jesse, spoken of in the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth verses of the eleventh chapter of Isaiah? Verily thus saith the Lord, It is Christ. Were it not for this section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the entire eleventh chapter of Isaiah would be extremely difficult to decipher, especially the first verse. The Lord solves part of the puzzle by simply saying that the, quote, stem of Jesse, unquote, is Jesus Christ. But out of this stem comes a rod and a root. What do they represent? It is believed that in order to understand this section, we have to carefully study the patriarchal blessing of Joseph Smith. 
This blessing was given to Joseph by his father on December 9, 1834, when Joseph was just a few days short of becoming 30 years of age. It is recorded in the Church Archives of Patriarchal Blessings, Volume 1, pages 3 to 4. What is the rod, spoken of in the first verse of the 11th chapter of Isaiah, that should come of the stem of Jesse? Behold, thus saith the Lord, It is a servant in the hands of Christ, who is partly a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Ephraim, or of the house of Joseph, on whom there is laid much power. Here we learn considerable information about the genealogy of the rod, but little else except that he is a servant of Christ, on whom will be placed much power. What is the root of Jesse, spoken of in the tenth verse of the eleventh chapter? Behold, thus saith the Lord, It is a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Joseph, unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom, for an ensign and for the gathering of my people in the last days. Now we learn that the root of Jesse has the same genealogy as the rod. Nevertheless, we get more details concerning the mission of the root than we do concerning the rod. We are told that the root is a descendant of both Judah, that is Jesse, and Joseph or Ephraim, and that the holy priesthood rightly belongs to him. Furthermore, that the keys of the kingdom will be in the root, and he will raise up an ensign, which will result in the worldwide gathering of Israel in the latter days. It seems rather obvious that the only person who qualifies under the description of the root is Joseph Smith. Of course, we never knew that Joseph had Jewish lineage as well as that of Ephraim, but this scripture clearly states that this was so. Now a little historical note. Verses 4 to 6 of this section tell us that Christ will set up two mighty servants, the rod and the root. Both of them have identical genealogical backgrounds, a mixture of Judah or Jesse and Joseph or Ephraim. The question immediately arises whether we are dealing with two individuals of identical backgrounds or one individual with two mighty missions. The answer may be found in the patriarchal blessing of Joseph Smith. It clearly indicates that Joseph's mortal mission as the root would allow him to restore biblical Christianity and his mission following his resurrection would allow him to act as the rod wherein he would have the authority and power to expand the role of God's law from New Jerusalem until it covers the whole earth. This is described in 2 Nephi chapter 12, verse 3. Let us analyze this marvelous patriarchal blessing which Father Joseph Smith gave to his son. The first part of the blessing is a tribute to young Joseph. His father said, quote, Joseph, my son, I lay my hands upon thy head in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to confirm upon thee a father's blessing. The Lord thy God has called thee by name out of the heavens. Thou hast heard his voice from on high from time to time. Even in thy youth, the hand of the angel of his presence has been extended toward thee, by which thou hast been lifted up and sustained. Yea, the Lord has delivered thee from the hands of thine enemies, 
and thou hast been made to rejoice in his salvation. Thou hast sought to know his ways, and from thy childhood thou hast meditated much upon the great things of his law. Unquote. Father Smith then refers to young Joseph's early life. He says, quote, Thou hast suffered much in thy youth, and the poverty and affliction of thy father's family have been a grief to thy soul. Thou hast desired to see them delivered from bondage, for thou hast loved them with a perfect love. Thou hast stood by thy father, and like Shem, would have covered his nakedness rather than see him exposed to shame. When the daughters of the Gentiles laughed, thy heart has been moved with a just anger to avenge thy kindred. Thou hast been an obedient son. The commands of thy father and the reproofs of thy mother thou hast respected and obeyed. For all these things the Lord thy God will bless thee." Unquote. Now the blessings turn toward Joseph's calling as the root or the servant of God who would be raised up by the Savior to restore the original gospel of Jesus Christ. Father Smith said, quote, Thou hast been called, even in thy youth, to the great work of the Lord, to do a work in this generation which no other man would do as thyself in all things according to the will of the Lord. A marvelous work and a wonder has the Lord wrought by thy hand, even that which shall prepare the way for the remnants of his people to come in among the Gentiles with their fullness as the tribes of Israel are restored. Unquote. At this point, Father Smith referred to the Book of Mormon and recited the writings of Joseph who was sold into Egypt. There we learn that this ancient prophet knew that in the latter days, one of his descendants would be named Joseph and would be raised up to give the gospel to the Gentiles and also to the Lamanites. Furthermore, it emphasizes that this modern prophet would be of this ancient Joseph's seed. Father Smith declared, quote, I bless thee with the blessings of thy fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even the blessings of thy father Joseph, the son of Jacob, Behold, he, that is Joseph of Egypt, looked after his posterity in the last days, when they would be scattered and driven by the Gentiles, that is, in America, and wept before the Lord. He sought diligently to know from whence the Son should come, who should bring forth the word of the Lord, by which they, the Lamanites, may be enlightened and brought back to the true fold. And his eyes, that is, Joseph's eyes, Beheld thee, my son, his heart rejoiced, and his soul was satisfied. And he, Joseph of Egypt, said, quote, As my blessings are extended to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills, as my father's blessing prevailed above the blessings of his progenitors, and as my branches are to run over the wall, and my seed are to inherit the choice land, that is America, whereon the Zion of God shall stand in the last days, from among my seed scattered with the Gentiles, shall be a choice seer arise, whose bowels shall be as a fountain of truth. The just shall desire his safety, and the upright in heart shall be his companions. No weapon formed against him shall prosper, 
And though the wicked mar him, that is Joseph Smith, for a little season, he shall be like one rising up in the heat of time. He shall roar in his strength, and the Lord shall put to flight his persecutors. He shall be blessed like the fruitful olive, and his memory shall be as sweet as the choice cluster of the first ripe grapes, like a sheaf fully ripe gathered into the garner. So shall he stand before the Lord, having produced a hundredfold. Unquote. Note that Joseph was sold into Egypt, knew that his descendant would be, quote, marred, unquote. However, it turned out that he was not only marred, but martyred. And now we return to the words of Joseph's father as he pronounces this patriarchal blessing on his son and says, quote, Therefore, my son, I know for a surety that these things will be fulfilled, and I confirm upon thee all these blessings. Thou shalt live to see the work which the Lord shall command thee, Thou shalt hold the keys of this ministry, even the presidency of this church, both in time and in eternity. Thy heart shall be enlarged, and thou shalt be able to fill up the measure of thy days according to the will of the Lord. Thou shalt speak the word of the Lord, and the earth shall tremble. Thou shalt escape the edge of the sword, and put to flight the armies of the wicked." At thy word the lame shall walk, the deaf shall hear, and the blind shall see. But thou shalt be gathered to Zion, and in the goodly land thou shalt enjoy thine inheritance, thy children and thy children's children to the latest generation. For thy name and the names of thy posterity shall be recorded in the book of the Lord, even in the book of blessings and genealogies, for their joy." and benefit forever, unquote. Now notice that Father Smith's blessing is already spilled over from Joseph's mortal mission to predicted events that would necessarily occur after his mortal life. For example, the last two sentences of the above paragraph say that Joseph Smith will be gathered to Zion, and in the goodly land thou shalt enjoy thine inheritance. His children will also enjoy this great blessing. But none of this ever happened during Joseph Smith's mortal life. Nevertheless, it will happen when Joseph assumes the role of the rod in his resurrected glory. In fact, Father Smith's blessing now turns entirely to the future after Joseph Smith's mortal life is past and Joseph has been resurrected. Father Smith says, quote, and now, my son, what more shall I say? Thou art as a fruitful olive tree and a choice vine. Thou shalt be laden with precious fruit. Thousands and tens of thousands shall come to a knowledge of the truth through thy ministry, and thou shalt rejoice with them in the celestial kingdom. Thou shalt stand upon the earth when it shall reel to and fro, as a drunken man, and be moved out of its place. Thou shalt stand when the mighty judgments go forth to the destruction of the wicked. Thou shalt stand on Mount Zion when the tribes of Jacob come shouting from the north, and with thy brethren the sons of Ephraim crown them in the name of Jesus Christ. Thou shalt see thy Redeemer come in the clouds of heaven, 
and with the just receive the hallowed throng with shouts of hallelujahs, praise the Lord, amen. Notice that this long list of things were prophetically designed to occur after Joseph's mortal life was passed. This is why we know he will have to witness these future events as a resurrected being. We might mention that the early brethren knew that Joseph Smith would be the first of this dispensation to be resurrected. As Heber C. Kimball stated, quote, Joseph will be the first man who will rise from the dead, and then all men according to their proper order, unquote. That's History of the Church, Volume 7, page 340. The early brethren were also aware that the mission of Joseph Smith would be extended into the next life. The Lord had said to Joseph Smith, quote, Verily I say unto you, The keys of this kingdom shall never be taken from you, while thou art in the world, neither in the world to come. Unquote. And that's in Doctrine and Covenants, section 90, verse 3. And then to the twelve apostles, Jesus said, Quote, Exalt not thyselves, rebel not against my servant Joseph. For verily I say unto you, I am with him, and my hand shall be over him, and the keys which I have given unto him shall not be taken from him till I come. Unquote. That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 112, verse 15. Joseph also received the keys to perform labors that would not occur until long after he had passed from this mortal sphere. For example, quote, Moses appeared before us and committed unto us the keys of the gathering of Israel from the four parts of the earth and the leading of the ten tribes from the land of the north, unquote. That's in Doctrine and Covenants 110, verse 11. This great event has not yet occurred. Of course, we cannot help wondering when the resurrected prophet Joseph will begin appearing in the councils of the presiding authorities and directing the affairs of the church. Heber C. Kimball left us with a prophetic timeline that helps us approximate when Joseph will begin to serve on his mission as the rod. Heber C. Kimball said, quote, An army of elders will be sent to the four quarters of the earth to search out the righteous, and warn the wicked of what is coming. All kinds of religions will be started, and miracles performed that will deceive the very elect if that were possible. Our sons and daughters must live pure lives so as to be prepared for what is coming. Unquote. Then Heber C. Kimball is quoted as continuing his prophecy as follows, Quote, After a while the Gentiles were gathered to this place by the thousands, and Salt Lake City will be classed among the wicked cities of the world. A spirit of speculation and extravagance will take possession of the saints, and the result will be financial bondage. Persecution comes next, and all true Latter-day Saints will be tested to the limit. Many will apostatize, and others will stand still, not knowing what to do. Darkness will cover the earth and gross darkness the minds of the people. The judgments of God will be poured out upon the wicked to the extent that our elders from far and near will be called home, or in other words, the gospel will be taken from the Gentiles and later to be carried on to the Jews. And of course, that will be after Armageddon. 
the western boundary of the state of Missouri will be swept so clean of its inhabitants that, as President Young tells us, quote, when you return to that place, there will not be left so much as a yellow dog to wag its tail, unquote. And then Brother Kimball continues, before that day comes, however, the saints will be put to tests that will try the integrity of the best of them. The pressure will become so great that the more righteous among them will cry unto the Lord day and night until deliverance comes, unquote. Now notice what Brother Kimball says concerning the prophet Joseph Smith. He says, quote, Then the prophet Joseph and others will make their appearance, and those who have remained faithful will be selected to return to Jackson County, Missouri, and take part in the building of that beautiful city, the New Jerusalem, unquote. This is found in a quotation by Heber C. Kimball in the Deseret News, May 23, 1931. It was originally recorded by Amanda H. Wilcox, and a copy may be found in special collections of the Brigham Young University Library. Now just one final note before we continue with Section 113. When patriarchal blessings were pronounced during at least the first five generations of the church, they often included statements similar to the closing part of Joseph Smith's blessings. For example, they were promised that they would stand or see in the flesh the return to Jackson County and the return of the ten tribes, the building up of the New Jerusalem, and the second coming. Naturally, they interpreted these things to mean that all these things would happen in their days of mortality, but they didn't happen. Like Joseph, they will witness these things in their resurrected flesh and thereby literally fulfill the promises of the inspired patriarchs who gave them these blessings long ago. Now let us continue with Wendell Noble reading verse 8. Questions by Elias Higby what is meant by the command in Isaiah 52nd chapter, first verse, which saith, Put on thy strength, O Zion. And what people had Isaiah reference to? He had reference to those whom God should call in the last days, who should hold the power of priesthood to bring again Zion and the redemption of Israel. And to put on her strength is to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she, Zion, has a right to by lineage, also to return to that power which she had lost. So the strength of Zion is the priesthood of the living God, and the Lord commands the sons of God to rise up and magnify the powers of the priesthood that have been restored in the latter days. What are we to understand by Zion loosing herself from the bands of her neck? Second verse we are to understand that the scattered remnants are exhorted to return to the Lord from whence they have fallen, which, if they do, the promise of the Lord is that He will speak to them or give them revelation. See the sixth, seventh, and eighth verses. The bands of her neck are the curses of God upon her or the remnants of Israel in their scattered condition among the Gentiles. Now here is a commandment from God for the scattered children of Israel, particularly the Jews, 
to throw off their yoke of bondage to which they have been burdened and show forth the power and authority of the glorious priesthood of God. The Lord even promises that the curses which have been such an affliction to the Israelites and especially the Jews down through the centuries will be removed. These are described in the scriptures as the bands of their necks and the sufferings which they endured when they were in bondage to the Gentiles. As we meditate over the treasures contained in section 113, we can well imagine the satisfaction of the faithful saints in Missouri to have Joseph in their midst. Now he could give them enlightened understanding and inspired answers to many difficult gospel questions. Section 114, Introduction. This revelation was given at Far West, Missouri on April the 17th, 1838. Although given to Joseph Smith, it related primarily to David W. Patton. David W. Patton was born in the state of New York around 1800. He was baptized on June the 15th, 1832. He performed several missions and gradually rose to prominence in the church. On February the 15th, 1835, he was ordained an apostle. He was reputed to be absolutely fearless. His testimony was powerful, and through him God performed many mighty works. In 1838, the mobbing in Missouri commenced anew, and Patton was foremost in the defense of the saints. He died as a result of a wound received on the 25th of October, 1838, in a conflict with a lawless rabble at the place called Crooked River. This ended his mission on this side of the Vale. On July the 2nd, 1840, shortly after Wilfred Woodruff arrived in the British mission, he recorded in his diary the following, quote, I was informed of a remarkable vision of Sister Anne Booth, which I have written on the following page. She said, quote, I beheld one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb that had been martyred in America, unquote. She later described him, and Elder would have concluded this could only have been David Patton. She then continued, On his right, near the door, stood John Wesley, and shouted, Glory, honor, praise, and power be ascribed unto God and the Lamb. Forever and ever, deliverance has come, unquote. She gained the impression that he had been completely converted to the gospel by the martyred apostle David W. Patton. Verily thus saith the Lord, It is wisdom in my servant David W. Patton that he settle up all his business as soon as he possibly can, and make a disposition of his merchandise that he may perform a mission unto me next spring in company with others, even twelve, including himself, to testify of my name and bear glad tidings unto all the world. It is apparent that the Lord was anxious to have Elder Patton go out into the missionary field with the rest of the quorum in the following spring. He had been especially successful in his previous missions. For verily thus saith the Lord, that inasmuch as there are those among you who deny my name, others shall be planted in their stead and receive their bishopric. Amen.
The Lord now makes reference to members of the church, some in high places, who are now guilty of apostasy. The Lord is putting them on notice that they will be replaced by the more valiant saints. And this is the end of section 114. We hope you're enjoying this podcast by W. Cleon Skousen. To find additional books and recordings on this and other topics, please visit skousenlibrary.com.